The breeding sow, an executive from Wall's Meat Company, wrote in the late 1970s, should be thought of and treated as a valuable piece of machinery whose function is to pump out baby pigs like a sausage machine. You're unlikely to hear that kind of statement today. Instead, we're taught by the likes of Hugh Fernley Whittingstall or Fergus Henderson to love the animals that become our meat and be concerned with their welfare, even where we're not concerned with killing them. This meat love is the subject of a new book by Amber Hussein and the subject of this interview. Meat Love, an Ideology of the Flesh is, I think, a wonderfully written little book. It's funny, sharp, and portrays a distinctly middle-class culture around meat-eating that so many people will be aware of without perhaps ever thinking about it. And you don't have to be vegan or even vegan-curious to like this book. Although, as we're about to hear, it probably helps. You're listening to The Full English, the show that sees the world through food. My name is Lewis Bassett. Music and editing is from Forest DLG. As always, please help support this show, first of all, by sharing it, and second, by signing up to give us £3 a month over at patreon.com forward slash full English. Amber Hussain, thank you so much for joining me on the Full English podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I thought maybe we can start with how you became vegan, because that's basically how you start the book. And you have an experience with sticking your hand in a chicken, basically, right? Yeah, just feeling that chicken flesh. It wasn't like, oh, that that was the one... I had no inclination whatsoever towards stopping eating meat, or I'd never thought about it. And there was just this one moment. It was more like that was a moment of realisation in a long process. It wasn't really one of an intellectual journey particularly or a moment of like radicalization it was more like i'd been feeling uneasy for a while about meat but not really doing anything about it just guiltily eating it and it wasn't until i was dating someone who described themselves as vegan and then started living with him that i guess not only was i by habit, not eating meat. Mm. But I was also around someone all the time who thought of meat in a different way from how I did, or who saw it for animal flesh or whatever, rather than as delicious food. And yeah, over time, because I wasn't eating it, I just found one day when I went to cook meat for someone who I thought expected it, it was like someone much older than me who I just assumed would expect to be fed meat for dinner. And yeah, I was making this chicken, which is something I'd done a million times, but not for a while. And it just felt so strange and weird. Mm -hmm. Like just the, yeah, the sort of the feel of it, it's the smell of it, everything. It suddenly started to feel really animal in a way that it hadn't before And I may have eaten meat a few times after that, but I suddenly became really aware of what I was doing and what had become a real one of the great pleasures of life just turned into kind of an ordeal. And yeah, something that I found disgusting. But yeah, you say when you became vegan, it wasn't like I ever one day was like, I am identifying as vegan now. Mm -hmm. But what I did find was that having started to see and experience meat in a different way, I guess it freed me from that very visceral attachment to meat, which had caused me to tie myself in knots defending it a little bit. Mm. It freed up my brain space to actually reckon a bit more with the sort of ethics and politics of meat eating in a way that kind of felt a bit more consonant with my politics elsewhere. So yeah, I guess it was more a sort of 
stealth process of opening up the sort of political imagination rather than a kind of moment of political grandstanding. Because you seem to be averse to labelling this book as vegan and maybe (laughs) even yourself as vegan or the food that you eat as vegan. So you're not really into talking about this in those terms. Yeah. Because this is about political awakening, really. Yeah. And you know what? I think there is, there can be a pragmatic purpose to saying I'm vegan, defining it as a kind of political stance. And it doesn't really matter what I call myself because there was an article in The Guardian that said I was a vegan author. So I guess I'm stuck with that now. um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I only mentioned, I think I only used the word maybe once in the book and it's not to refer to me. And I think that's partly because I think it does, it comes with a lot of preconceptions about Not that there's a single meaning to that word. People use it very differently. But I think that there are some strong associations with it, either as a kind of very apolitical thing, which is just all about diet and lifestyle and consumer choices and sometimes health and like this kind of stuff, or a sort of abstract political stance towards animals that doesn't really elaborate very much about our relationship with food and that kind Mm. of tries to distance itself from food a little bit. And I kind of wanted the book to be about both politics and food. And I felt like using the word vegan seems like it's answering the question a bit of Mm -hmm. the relationship between those two things. And I wanted to open it up a bit and, and ask those questions and think a bit about what is the relationship between how we eat and how we think about our politics and our relationship with animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I suppose that's why I don't really tend to use the word. And then also I think that the book does come to a conclusion and I suppose there's a somewhat prescriptive element there, but it's not that hard line about what people should do and what dietary choices they should make because it's aware of speaking to a kind of political horizon beyond the social and economic order that we live under and within the circumstances of everyday life now and within the unequal society that we live in, consumer choices are not, the choices that are available are not the same to everybody. It's sidestepping that issue a little bit. Because you have a real target, right? There's so much in what you just said that I really want to come back to and we will come back to. I particularly want to stick a pin in how experiencing meat, seeing it in a different way, can be like a radical opening. Mm. We'll definitely come back to that. I also have my own experiences around that. I I grew up vegetarian and I remember the first time I put meat in my mouth and it was such a weird sensation. But... Let's, because people listening to this will be wondering, like, what even is meat love? Who are the yeah, meat lovers? Yeah, like, who, sorry. like, no, that's, <laughs> let's my, rewind. I, oh, yeah, exactly. It's my, my questioning. But yeah, taking a step back, you're basically targeting, I guess, a group of people, milieu, kind of fashion, a, a class of people. Yeah. Who, I mean, you explain it. They're, they're a group of middle class people who love meat and they love eating meat, but they love animals, but they love killing them. Yeah. Can you tell me, like, who's this book critiquing and what what is meat love? Yeah, so this is a very selective... We're talking about a very particular aspect of meat eating, which is, yeah, what I describe as meat love is basically both a sort of ethic and an aesthetic that seems to be a product of the last kind of 30 years or so in an awareness of the cruelties of factory farming and the kind of issues around meat eating and climate change and also I guess the sexual politics of meat and masculinity the sort of 
common sense around meat has become a little bit more uneasy than maybe it was in certain spheres, particularly among those who consider themselves ethically minded liberals and who have the luxury of choice. So I'm talking mostly about the middle class here who have found a way (laughs) to continue eating meat, but not just in a sort of humbled way, although there is a kind of like faux humble element to it, but in quite a self-congratulatory way and in a way that transforms this idea of meat as a kind of dominating, dominatory, sexual act to a sort of loving, caring, respectful, and in a way philosophically and intellectually profound and superior kind of way. Mm -hmm. So that involves invoking and supporting an industry, a a sort of, I suppose, a, a fairly niche industry in ethical meats, There's a sort of, yeah, there's a production element to it, but then there's also a kind of consumption element to it in terms of eating meat in a very kind of aestheticized way that refers to a sort of peasant roughness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Let's give some concrete examples. So there's people in your book that lots of people will be familiar with, like Hugh Fernley Wingstall. He he gets it in your book. He's he's in every chapter. Sorry, Hugh. I feel like it's really unfair. Actually, everyone's bringing up Hugh and it's like, I'm not saying these people are responsible for meat love, but they have definitely become kind of cultural figureheads um, that it's easy to kind of How how does Hugh express or manifest (laughs) meat love? Yeah, and I think, so, so this is also a very British example. Like there are other kind of American counterparts. I do talk a bit about Michael Pollan, but there's many others who are part of this kind of everyone let's get back to the land we've all become cosseted in or the urban population has become completely ignorant of the kind of brute realities of the countryside nature where our meat comes from so let's let's all really engage with that but not engage with it with a view to the open-mindedly thinking about what the kind of logical end point of our exploitation of animals might be but to, <laughs> to look at it in a way that feels really uh, like we're doing the hard work and then we can justify continuing to eat animals, albeit in a kind of modified way. Mm-hmm. So this, yeah, this kind of let's revisit the purer relationship, maybe the peasant farmers, for example, or indigenous hunter-gatherers in other contexts like have had or continue to have in some contexts with the animals they kill and let's be more like that. It's idealised and romanticised. Yeah, like yeah. River Cottage, this wonderful yeah. little utopian space in which we've gone back to an imagined peasant past. Yeah, and, and give... I know he does that in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, but the end result is still the same. That It's deluding people into thinking that they can somehow engage in this nostalgic, you know, working class or peasant cosplay and that is somehow relevant to the wider structure of society or more relevant to their own lives. Yeah, yeah. Fergus Henderson also comes, or St. John in general, comes under criticism. As as, as soon as I read the intro, I think I said this to you in an email, as soon as I read the intro, I was like, oh, this St. John's definitely going to come up here. How is that? Uh, manifestation of meat love. Yeah, so that's, yeah, in the book I move through the sort of like cosmic level of our, the way that we think about philosophy of meat to the way that meat is produced and farmed and all of this to how it's eaten. And yeah, St. John kind of, (laughs) St. John is the unfortunate victim among some other examples of the critique of a certain foodie culture around meat love. 
Particularly, I'm talking about the kind of nose-to-tail ethic of eating the whole animal, respecting the whole animal, this idea that it would be disingenuous to the animals we kill not to relish eating the whole thing and not to make a big deal of it. And yeah, I suppose when you look at places like St. John, which are not just pricey, but also steeped in a certain cultural capital that isn't necessarily accessible to even all of the middle classes, these kind of chic, high-end dining experiences where unlike in the kind of folklore that they're drawing on in that aesthetic universe, particularly in the cookbooks and all of this, it's not a situation where we have to kill this pig and live on it for the winter and really feast on it and appreciate the bounties of nature and the, the hard work, that the labor that has gone into making this food. It's No, this, these are animals that are being killed specifically that are surplus to requirements. They're feeding a kind of foodie culture that is extremely carnivorous. I talk in the book about a guy, a presenter of something called The Meat Show, who goes to St. John and talks about how without this restaurant, his whole career wouldn't have existed. It's this sort of like whole culture that is fueling this very self-congratulatory meat eating, rather than actually genuinely being about respect for preserving the kind of precious resource Mm. that is animals that we're killing for food out of necessity. You do two really cool things when you talk about St. John and just the meatloaf thing in general, which is like you have this way of writing that makes, if you're a meat eater, the experience of eating meat really unfamiliar and like you kind of you, oh, you give a, you, there's a bit where you talk about like how it's fashionable to be sucking the marrow out of uh, mm. calves' thigh bones or whatever and I was like oh yeah I've been there I'm that guy uh, <laughs> yeah no me too I think it's yeah it's only it's I think this is it as well it's only when you've become when you've been really close to something that it really can become strange as yeah well, yeah anyway. it's just it's good that you're kind of going back to the thing of sticking your hand in the chicken and it yeah. being so unfamiliar like reading this seeing it on the page it makes it also kind of unfamiliar as a reader even though you've experienced it but the other thing I really like about the book is this class analysis all this just really mm. interesting description of this fashion this mm. movement this group of people which which come across as like incredibly like idealistic, romantic, and maybe a bit misguided or something. And the example that comes to mind is like Hugh Fenley Whittingstall when he's like, I need to kill some pigs because I've got some local debts to pay back. <laughs> yeah. and as if like the guy wasn't, you know, you point out that he went to school at Eton and then Oxford. He's yeah. from Islington, wealthy dude. He's making a TV show that obviously pays quite well. Yeah. And they're living in this kind of fantasy land, that's what you paint. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, he's not an idiot. He's saying this in a sort of funny way, because the TV show River Cottage, or whatever it's called, Escape to River Cottage, it's a fun piece of theatre in a way. This whole staging, you know, oh, I now I have to go to the abattoir because I have to do this, or now I have to go and buy some chickens and sell this meat and pay off some debts or whatever. He's presenting it as play acting. Mm. But then the thing that is really scary is that people refer to it as, or it becomes part of the cultural common sense as a sincere thing, as if that kind of economic necessity applies to everybody, regardless of their means or the ways they make their money, even if they're like landowners or whatever. Mm. (laughs) With with St. John, there's a really good bit where you kind of talk about thrift and this kind of aesthetic thrift, but then a plate of ham is like 30 quid, 20 quid or something. Yeah, yeah. So I I wonder, basically, are you depicting a kind of an ideology, a culture 
that enables people in a broader sense to justify eating animals? Is that the kind of thing that you're getting across? Yeah. And maybe also justifies in the St. John example, like charging a lot of money to do that. Do I think it's kind of like shoring up support for meat, meat eating, basically? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's impossible to say, but it seems reasonable to suppose that it is to some extent. Mm -hmm. But also I think there's an element of this, which is where the sort of virtue that, that we are now allowed to feel in eating meat via eating meat in, in, in supposedly ethical ways, it becomes a sort of end in itself, and the conversation around meat eating sort of ends there. And the conversation around what more serious transformation might be needed, for example, to end factory farming is kind of off the agenda, like weirdly, because there's this niche market for a few people. When I was talking about the Hugh Fernley Whittingstall fiction being referenced as though it were nonfiction, I talk in the book about this guy like an Insta farmer who has his own Channel 5 show, which he explicitly says was inspired by Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, which is painfully unironic and performed as though this were all the kind of like rich smallholder just showing you how it should be done with the animals and dissing the working class factory farmers, talking about how it would be so easy for everybody to just, or people can make such a big difference with what they choose to eat, completely ignoring the fact that not everybody has the the economic means to make the same choices as the rich Insta farmer who's been like, bought a farm and featured in Tatler and this and that. <laughs> yeah, has the revenue stream of being, a, being an influencer. Yeah, exactly. Who's not actually having to make all the money so it's from the like farm. You're, yeah, it's like... It's not, maybe I just described it as you're depicting an ideology that allows us to continue eating meat. Maybe mm -hmm. that's happening on one level, but also you're saying insofar as we recognise that eating meat is a bit of an issue, mm. this takes us down a bit of a dead end. And it's a bit of a dead end because it's a bit of a fantasy. Mm. Because I think one of the things you get to in your book, is it's, which is quite radical, you're basically saying there's no such thing as, I mean, you would probably say there's no such thing as eating meat ethically full stop ever, but certainly you think there's no way of dealing with this problem kind of, under capitalism or under the system that we have, right? Yeah, like on like a large these, these, scale. These things like false to imagine you can have ethical consumerism and just deal with these problems like yeah. factory farming. Yeah, I think the more I was thinking about it when I was, because I didn't actually know what I thought when I started writing this book, but the more time I spent thinking about not just the class dynamics of meat eating, but also a bit more about the political economy of meat production is just that like meat seems to be... If you think about animals, if you think about animals as a class, if you think about the way that animals are exploited as workers, but also ultimately as commodities, treated as commodities uh, eaten. And you know how there's, like in human society, we establish a hierarchy of which lives are more and less valuable in order that we can extract profit from some. <laughs> um, it's... Meat would seem to be the logical extension of that system in some way, is that the lives that you value the least of all, you're going to kill them and eat them. Mm -hmm. In a kind of like very broad sense, meat eating obviously predates capitalism, but capitalism systematizes it. So there's very little you can really do about it while we live under that system. Because yeah, there's this like endless cheapening of life and what you get is factory farms mm -hmm. at the end of the day. So yeah, I think... To some extent, if we're going to radically transform our relationship with meat and our relationship with animal life, 
then I guess it's the good news and the bad news is that we do have to think about a kind of radically different social and economic order. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, I don't necessarily think that in and of itself is enough either. Like I can also imagine a post-capitalist human society where people were still eating meat. And so that's kind of where the argument about the importance of opening ourselves up to eating in different ways and trying to cultivate new ways of seeing and experiencing and tasting what is on this earth is maybe also a necessary condition of extending that anti-capitalist ethic to animal life as well. Yeah. Before we go again to the still with a pin in it to the enlightenment bit of your book. I don't know if that's the way I would talk about it. <laughs> well, like personal enlightenment. <laughs> I, I, political enlightenment, you know, like yeah, the thing yeah. you're saying. Uh, we'll come We'll come back to that. Yeah, but like, okay. I'm going to put, yeah, I, I said to you over email that I wanted to push back a bit on this. And so here it is. But mm. I guess I'm a bit of a meat lover, right? Yeah. And in my mind, I'm a chef. I'm very heavily invested in this whole system. Yeah, yeah. You know, the food we make at work are for these kind of people, the people mm-hmm. that will not recognize you for any way. So I was a decent guy. And our suppliers are the people that will be really concerned with animal welfare as far as possible and so on. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, and I think other people would also push back and say like, surely it's better that insofar as you're going to eat animals, it's going to come from places like this. Yeah. Isn't that, I guess on one level you're saying it doesn't really matter because you're still killing the animal. Mm. I don't know. And then another level you're like, that's false ideology. (laughs) It's not that it doesn't matter because you're killing the animal. I guess what I'm saying is, it's not, it's not necessarily one or the other that we have to be completely uncaring if we are to... In fact, it's the opposite. What I'm saying is that we have to cultivate a more kind of expansive definition of what it means to care for an animal in order to really think seriously about changing the kind of political system as a whole. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sympathetic to that idea that it's it is good to cultivate a disposition of love and care towards animals. And I do think that is necessary. I just think that the way that we're defining it is very limited if ultimately it's still still resulting in our eating their flesh. But like, <laughs> um, um, the, um, yeah, it, it comes back to that thing of it becoming an end in itself, I guess. It's yeah. like, you know, you feel like the work is done because we've made it all a little bit better. Sure. Um Whereas actually, I just think that it, it's, again, it's a niche market and we need to think a bit bigger. And in order to think a bit bigger, we need to think a bit more uh, expansively about what it really means to care for animals. Or to think maybe less in terms of concepts like care and love and think in terms of justice. Because a lot of horrible things can be done in the name of care and love, which I do talk about a little bit in mm-hmm. the stuff about animal husbandry and like... Not to draw direct comparisons, obviously, because it's different, but to identify a kind of common set of arguments in how we justify our sort of sexual exploitation of animals in the meat and dairy industry in the name of how they also love and depend on us. What do you mean by the sexual... You've said that a couple of times. What do you mean by the sexual exploitation of animals? Well, I guess, you know, when you breed cows for dairy you've got to keep artificially inseminating them over and over again and they do that on something called a rape rack you know and i'm laughing but it is horrible um you know where you have to force a breeding gun up the vagina and uh i you know don't need to go into the details of it too Mm. graphically but there's an interesting article 
I don't want to I don't want to misrepresent it because it's such a delicate thing, but where Amir Srinivasan, the philosopher, talks about bestiality and she's talking about the kind of continuities and the way people talk about animal husbandry and the sort of discourse of rape apologism where horrible things or very sexually exploitative things are justified with reference to consent and how someone else might consent to you doing something because they love you back. There's Mm. a lot of talk about animals loving us back, which I think can often be sincerely believed, Mm. but maybe not necessarily that carefully thought through in terms of how we have over time trained and conditioned animals to respond in certain ways to the necessities of the highly imbalanced relationship that we've developed with them in animal farming, livestock farming and dairy farming. Yeah. Yeah, to go back to what we were just saying, like on one level, it's completely incommensurable the fact that I would say maybe it's better to look, like attempt to care for animals or whatever. Mm. As fraught as that might be, yeah. while still wanting to eat them, it's incommensurable because you just think eating animals is bad. On the second level, <laughs> right? Like we're not going to like go anywhere with that because you think fundamentally. And that in a way is kind of like this, you say this isn't really a book concerned with veganism, but that's at the heart of this, right? Okay, I had a second point, but let's stick with this. Yeah, okay. You, th- you think yeah, fundamentally sure. killing animals is always wrong. Well, listen, this book doesn't ever say eating animals is a kind of universal moral aberration because I think that there are questions that, or there are issues that looking at meat eating from a moral perspective just can't answer. And for example, it's obviously, if you were to say meat eating is morally indefensible, that's not it's not a universalizable moral principle because there are certain people who for economic reasons can't afford not to eat meat, for example. And yeah, I wanted to look at it from a political perspective instead for various reasons, you know, partly because I think if you do that, then it helps you to think maybe about why that might be the case, that certain people might be forced to, like, you know, there are there are constraints on choice in our diets which are not equally shared, But then also because I think, and I mentioned this in the book, that there are people at the extremes of the political right and left who would say, you know, who have never been susceptible to the ideology of meat love, who would just say, yeah, it actually is fine to eat animals. And this book is not for those people because if, for example, on, on the political right, there are certain people who would just defend the right to exploit and extract from and consume other beings. And if that's what you think, you know, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but like, if, um, if, but then there are also people on the left who think because the economic and social order that produces meat is so totalizing, there's nothing we can do about it. Your consumer choices are kind of irrelevant. We might as well keep eating meat. So there's a kind of melancholic thing going on there. Mm. And, you know, I, I don't feel qualified to guarantee revolution. So like, I also don't think that this book is really speaking to those people either necessarily. So it's more like trying to talk to the large section of people between who maybe are politically engaged and would like to think of themselves as morally thoughtful, but who haven't who have managed to find a way of making meat-eating seem morally good because they haven't politicised it. Does that make sense? So I guess I'm trying to to look at it from a political perspective, which allows for a bit more moral wiggle room 
in order to speak to those people to say, okay, but yeah, what if you thought about this in terms of class? Might that, might that change how you think about it? But then there's also the coming back to what I was saying at the beginning is like, it's, yeah, it's not just about making the arguments. I think a lot of it, a lot of the reason that the vegan agenda is unsuccessful and or can be so unsuccessful in a lot of ways is because it does try to win on the basis of arguments rather than thinking about why it is that people like to eat meat, mm-hmm. why people are attached to it, whether or not in some sense we have to put behavior before reasoning in a way. Um And, you know, I don't know. I think that's the clever thing about the book. I'm sorry to drag you into a discussion about the morality of eating meat because that's not really what your book... You're not really... No, but it's interesting to think about, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I feel like underneath this book is that question. And the book is really aimed at a group of people, a certain group of people, a certain culture, fashion, what the stuff we were talking about a minute ago. But, like, someone who eats meat, and I don't eat that that much meat or whatever, but (laughs) I, I, you know, even need to ignore the question, Mm. or it it was obviously going to raise in my mind, like... Is it even okay to be killing animals? That's what I'm thinking when I'm reading this book. But I don't know, let's, I mean, maybe we can put that to one side for now. But yeah, going back to the, like, who your book is aimed at and the meat lovers of this world. Again, maybe I'll count myself in that group. But I feel like, yeah, if this is a bit of a dead end, thinking about what we do about our clearly low welfare standard food system in regards to animals and what we end up doing is producing this kind of niche market, effectively. Mm. Kind of what you're saying is like a dead end. I just, I wonder, don't you think a lot of people who are partaking that, even Hugh Fernley Wingstall, even like Fergus Henderson and whoever else, maybe they they also know that this is just one way of getting by in, in a kind of unequal system. Whereas like maybe for all we know, those people might also have really radical politics and want to restructure the world so it becomes more equal and people can afford yeah. more, better, better quality food, restructure land so yeah, like, you yeah. have more, all this stuff. Like, I mean, sometimes we have to separate the personal and the political, right? Uh, yeah, I don't think, I'm not sure. I think, yeah, is it about a separation between personal and political? I think that's absolutely right, that you can totally continue to eat meat, for example, or like do any any number of other politically dubious things, but still be politicized in other ways. I think, yeah, this is kind of about not just trying to connect the dots, but to extend that politicization to a concern for animals as a class. Yeah, and also to to a great extent, the workers who are involved in meat production. I think that those things can certainly be compatible. It's more about, I guess the way that I put it is, it's easy to imagine getting to a certain point in transforming the socioeconomic order without even considering meat. But if we're thinking about going all the way and transforming the food system, and I do think meat is not a fringe issue. It's mm. like, you know, as I said, I feel like to some extent, the sort of logical <laughs> logical conclusion of capitalist violence in certain ways. And I think that if we, you know, if we want to make that transformation on a serious scale and to a serious depth, then it is important. For me, it's necessary but insufficient condition of social transformation towards uh, meat, a free future or a future where making of meat was unthinkable, that we sort of do what we can to embody that, embody that attitude. Mm. And I do find it hard to imagine that we're going to be eliminating meat from the food system 
if we are just still continuing to chow down on steak and, and, and also talk about just like gush about how amazing it is and how like, you know, how naughty it is, <laughs> which is what I hear from a lot of people on the left who are really, you know, right on in lots of other ways and are doing amazing political work. Yeah. So yeah, I think basically, I think there's some important coalition building to be done between the sort of labor movement and the animal liberation movement and the climate justice movement and all of it. Um, Would yeah. you say that the objective of your book is to speak to those people who maybe feel a little or have felt a bit guilty about eating meat and have decided that the way they want to deal with that is to like love the animal? Uh, and yeah. then you're saying to them, you know, maybe that's a bit ridiculous and pushing them a bit further. Is that yeah, cool? basically. Yeah. People who have found a way to justify it in moral terms and then stopped there, even when they might be politicized in other ways. I think, it, yeah, it partly comes from seeing how many people on the left who are so passionately politicized are so depoliticized around me, which comes from my own experience of being like that, basically. Mm. And I don't think that I'm necessarily a thought leader here. I think there are other people who are politicizing veganism and politicizing the kind of arguments against meat-eating all over the world. But I think that maybe some of the connections are yet to be drawn between those political arguments and the kind of everyday practices of how we eat. That might help change some people's minds who haven't quite got beyond, yeah, just cleaning up meat-eating a little bit and just making it feel a bit more nice. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of takes me to this thing, which is there's an interesting tension in your book where you quite clearly think that ethical consumerism is not going to solve the kind of issues that you're concerned with. At the same time, you're also like, don't be cynical, be kind of authentic, mm. don't eat the animals if you really respect them. You're telling people, even if you become vegan or whatever, that's not going to change the world, but you should become vegan. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and Because there's a, there's, a, there's a thing there, because you actually yeah. say, like when you become vegan, it's, this is the enlightenment thing that I was talking about. Yeah. You kind of see the world differently. Yeah, yeah. It's completely intentional the way that I make that argument, because I don't think that the consumer choices are particularly politically relevant. And so making the distinction between that and politicizing yourself. And I think that the way that you eat can be a very powerful way of politicizing yourself, as I discovered by accident, by not eating meat over a period of time. And yeah, learning by stealth to see it differently and to experience it differently. As I was saying, it freed up my political imagination, gave me a bit of space to think more seriously politically about meat and what it is. And what that does is I, I guess it like strengthens us as political actors in a certain way mm. to do the kind of much harder work than just making dietary choices that is involved in kind of movement building and other kinds of political organizing that might actually make a difference to the food system or not just the food system because there's no point in transforming, trying to transform one system within a totalizing economic system. But, you know, find alternatives to a, yeah, economic and social order that is governed by competition and profit and all of this rather than needs so it, it sounds like a paradox but I don't mm. think it actually is mm. the consumer choices are not relevant necessarily but that doesn't mean that 
eating isn't relevant because, yeah, how we eat is about more than just our consumer choices. It's about how we're making ourselves as human beings. I hadn't thought of this prior to this interview, but it just brings to mind like this one time I was in Tesco <laughs> with a friend of mine. And if he's listening, he'll know instantly that it's him. I won't say his name. And we were buying eggs for some reason. And he went to get the battery cage at eggs. And this is before probably, I don't even know if Tesco even sell battery cage eggs anymore. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? Like, just like pay mm. like a bit more and get mm. that, at least in my mind, or at least the way I like to tell myself, like the slightly more ethical ones. Yeah. And he was like, it just doesn't matter what I do. Yeah, and, and for some yeah. reason he was, he gave some population statistic. I think it was like Bangladesh or somewhere. It was just like <laughs> 150 million people live in Bangladesh. I don't know why he chose that country. What does it even matter what I buy but you're kind of saying to him it really matters not really what you buy but how you see the world exactly exactly it's like reinforcing the idea of animals as food rather mm -hmm. than just it actually making a difference whether you ate the egg of that chicken because it makes yeah to some extent very little doesn't difference. make any difference yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, I guess to some extent doesn't make any difference that doesn't make any sense but yeah it makes very little difference because sure. um, we're all vessels of ideology and we reproduce ideas and we reproduce the way that each of us see the world and stuff so that's yeah. kind of what you're saying really matters. yeah exactly so you're kind of saying that in order to really change our food system we kind of need to be anti-capitalist or we need mm. to think about our food system in terms of capitalism mm -hmm. um but like companies obviously have an incentive to sell us stuff and sell it as cheap as possible and so obviously profit off the slaughter of, of animals and so on but doesn't the production of synthetic meat i.e like lab-grown meat and all the promises of silicon valley mm. make it such that we could actually conceive a world in which those capital incentives never go away. And actually they spur on a, a drive towards veganism because the profit margins in making meat are quite low, but the profit margins <clears throat> potentially in making some fake meat could be really high. And we could see within our lifetimes, people moving over towards lab-grown meat, for example. Yeah, I think, I think there's a debate to be had there about lab-grown meat and definitely from an, I don't know, I haven't audited this, but from an environmental perspective. And obviously from the perspective of not actually killing as many animals, I guess. But I suppose the way that I think about veganism is not so much in terms of just reducing the number of animals that get killed, but in as a sort of entire attitude to animals, animal life, animals as a class. And yeah, there's something about trying to synthesize animal flesh for our diets that just doesn't seem to fit in with that at all. If you reduce veganism to literally putting the meat that has come from a living animal in your mouth, then like, yes. But yeah, if you think about it in terms of a slightly longer term, more transformative thing to do with rethinking our relationship with animals and the kind of social relationship with animals, both as creatures that we coexist with on the world, but also creatures that are involved in work and so on, then yeah, I think there's something quite perverse about finding elaborate ways to as closely as possible mimic b what it would be like to eat them. So that's where I stand on. Yeah, that makes sense. I kind of, I get the feeling from you that you have an idealistic, not, men, not meaning that in a pejorative sense, mm. but an idealistic way of looking at social change and looking at transformation and yeah, like the, 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 the other others who might be like look we need to achieve for environmental reasons for reasons of morality 
we need to achieve net zero veganism, mm. right? Mm. And to do that the quickest way possible is just to give people synthetic meat. Mm. And like the world is, the, like the developing world especially, demanding meat products. What are you going to do? You can't, we can't turn around to them and say, just because you've seen for decades people in the West eating chicken nuggets, now we're telling you can't eat it. That's a problem in and of itself, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess like if you see the problem just as one of numbers of animals killed, I, I guess. But this is it for you. It's a bigger, more expansive way. Yeah, of yeah. I think for yeah for the purposes of this book, <laughs> sure. which is about yeah politicizing meat eating, then yeah. yeah, like absolutely. I think that also if we're thinking about this in terms of ecological crisis, and if we're thinking about it in terms of a moral a moral crisis as well, I actually not sure you can separate that from the from a bigger political project. I don't think that we're going to solve climate change without basically getting rid of capitalism so really it's about thinking about these things as a the relationship between them rather than being like we've got to do this first yeah i don't think that there is a kind of convincing roadmap to eliminating all the stuff that comes with the sort of like environmental and ethical destruction of meat production not just meat production itself, without that political transformation. So I mm. guess that's where I'm coming from on that. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. Final question. So we're going off on a completely different tangent here. It also goes back to the vegan thing. And I'm sure, when I was a vegetarian, people always used to ask me, like, why are you a vegetarian? And loads yeah. of really annoying questions like that. I'm sure you yeah. get it all the time. But anyway, here's, here's an annoying question. I've also dished it as well, so... Okay, fine. You know, as as <laughs> this is it. We're reproducing ideas constantly. Um... <laughs> I always have this idea that maybe, especially as a chef, vegans, maybe it's easy to be vegan when you don't really like food. Mm. And I think chefs, again, reproducing ideas, we all carry this idea that a vegan comes into the restaurant, it doesn't really matter what we feed them because they probably just, they're just there for some other reason. They don't yeah. really like food. I mean, we do make an effort, but on some level, the deliciousness of food, I, I, I'm, I, well, on, on paper, obviously, it kind of makes sense to be like, we should be more concerned with the welfare of others and the lives of others. We're not killing things. Yeah. than with how delicious something is. Yeah. But in practice, yeah. most people behave according to what they find to be delicious or what they find to be culturally appropriate. Maybe that's another thing. But I'm yeah. just wondering, how do you come to this? Do you Are you still a food lover? Yeah, yeah, okay. I do, lo I love food. Food is one of my big joys in life. But I know what you're saying. And I, I it's, do... It's just hard to let go, isn't oh, Well, it, right? I relate to that kind of like, I'm not sure, honestly, if I would be able to make these arguments if it weren't for the fact that I had come to stop enjoying meat so much and mm. to start finding it disgusting. But what that reveals to me is actually that these things are not mutually exclusive. I don't think that abstinence and pleasure greater pleasure in food necessarily have to cancel each other out mm -hmm. like and i think that maybe i'm so averse to the idea of being thought of as a vegan who's trying to feed you the disgusting fake macaroni cheese cheese for Z. oh yeah sometimes i'm really paranoid i'm like oh my god do i think that the food that i'm making is really delicious and actually i've just become completely deluded in the last five <laughs> years and everyone else is like oh yeah oh that's so nice um what's your, uh, what's your go to what's your go-to dish if you have friends over? oh i don't have a go-to dish but i just cook this is the thing okay so this is the thing is that i think part of the problem is that veganism has come to be seen as like 
its own specific diet, right? Rather than like literally everything that isn't an animal. Yeah. And so I guess... It's just, like, you know, you can't erase 11,000 years of hating animals. I know, but there are like, there are so many other things out there. And, it, and I definitely didn't used to be able to see this myself, but now I do, I can't really unsee it. I sound yeah. probably really like Jesus-like right now, but like I am... This is the exact thing that you don't want to do. Yeah. You you, this is in the book, you're completely avoiding uh, being the moral preacher guy. But I will say, no, but I do think there are, there, there are great pleasures to be found in other things. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to convince you at this, <laughs> at this precise point in time, but maybe, I don't know. We'll see. What's, like, how about a chef? What's, is there a good, or a cookbook, or is there something that you think is, that you really rate? Oh, that's such a hard question if I was like, without me labelling myself as some, like, awful... You know what, though? Like, I... Oh, my boyfriend is going to absolutely hate me because he literally is so allergic to me and my friends talking about Mira Soda. And one time I accidentally made... Oh, I didn't accidentally. I made someone Mira Soda thing for dinner that they had eaten for lunch that day, which is just like the most tragic thing you've ever heard. She writes a column every week in The Guardian about, which is just like vegan recipes, right? Mm. But like the idea is that you don't necessarily need to try and replicate meaty and dairy-ish stuff that if you go east, <laughs> for example, you're going to find a lot of cuisines that were just, are just like not using animals anyway. Yeah, there's a lot of delicious... I don't, I don't want to get into a whole thing about cultural appropriation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we're not going there, that's fine. Um, but you're not willing to give me one dish. You're not willing to just give me a concrete... Because really... everything hinges on this for me. Oh my God, Lewis. No, because there's so much pressure on that one dish then. If I'm not going to eat the, the pig's trotters and the veal marrow, what am I going to have instead? Coconut But, but you can toast. just like, you can find, because loads of it is about, loads of it is about fat, isn't it? It's about fat and it's about scorching things. And umami. And, yeah. and umami. You could get umami from, it's maybe it's not, it's not the same, but you can, the other day I had dinner uh, and maybe this is again me being deluded, but a friend who is like really, <laughs> a friend of mine who's really into St. John again and had made these very St. John inspired dishes mm. um, for dinner for loads of people and had really painstakingly made like a vegan mince thing for the vegans. And I'm quite averse to vegan corn mince because I think that, yeah, the fake meat, it's like weird. Why would you be trying to replicate an animal? But he tried so hard to make it umami with, I don't know, miso and porcini and like loads of tomato paste and like herbs and all of this stuff. And it was just so good. And I was just eating it, just thinking like, and probably had put loads of olive oil and like loads of fat in it to, and walnuts or almonds or something to make it really nice. And I was just like, I, I just bet that the meat one isn't as good at this point. Mm -hmm. She put so much effort in to make this, <laughs> to make this acceptable because it pained him so much to be cooking vegan food. Also, you can just deep fry stuff. You want to make it tasty? That's true. That's the easy way to sell stuff <laughs> at a restaurant as well. People think that the secret of restaurant cooking is lots of butter, and that's true, but actually one of the secrets is also deep frying things. Yeah, deep fry stuff, ferment stuff, I don't know, use nuts, do... Yeah, I just think there are ways. The truth is out there. The truth um, is out there, people. <laughs> Amber, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, it's been fun. Meet 
Meat Love, An Ideology of the Flesh is out now, I think, with Mac Publishing. And if I haven't said already, I think it's a really wonderfully written book. It doesn't come across as preachy or, or um, judgmental in any way. And it's fascinating to read. And it's also incredibly short and worth picking up. So yeah, Meat Love out now. Thanks again, Amber.